Genesis chapter 18. Abraham, the very first Jew, is living in a tent in the desert. He's a famously nice, generous guy. It's the middle of the day, and it's hot because it's the desert. Strangers pass by, and Abraham invites them into his tent. He uses precious water to wash their dirty feet. And he hurries to tell his wife, Sarah, to make breads and cakes. And he sends a servant to slaughter the finest calf for a meal for them. And he feeds the strangers. But here's the kicker, and I quote, He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. Milk and the calf. Meat and milk together. This is one of the most essentially un-Jewish, non-kosher meals of all time. Meat and milk together, kind of a big deal. There are a lot of commentaries about this piece, mostly explaining how Abraham was not exactly breaking kashrut or asking his visitors to. Wait, um, before we get too far into this, let's start the show. This is Come and Listen. My name is Alyssa Kapnick. And I'm Hannah Kapnick-Ashar. The laws around keeping kosher, Jewish eating, or kashrut, can seem alienating, black and white, and kind of neurotic. Some examples of apparently neurotic behavior relating to kashrut? Let's start here. In order to keep dairy and meat separate in one's kitchen, Jews often keep two sets of dishes, flatware, and pots. That in and of itself seems kind of extreme. And let's say you accidentally, God forbid, used a milk knife to cut cold meat. The knife becomes unkosher. You can make that knife kosher again by thrusting the blade into the dirt ground 10 times. If you live in a city and can't find dirt ground, you're permitted to thrust the knife 10 times into the soil of a potted plant. That's a real thing. Real thing. The way you eat and the way you keep kosher, because there's not just one way, can align you with or separate you from non-Jews and even other Jews. But Abraham, the father of all Jews, served milk and meat in the same meal. The Torah has now, by the way, Abraham stabbed the butter knife into the desert sand every time his visitors used it on their filet mignon in it. So how did we get from Abraham serving what would now be an unkosher meal to separate sets of meat and dairy dishes and potted plant soil stabbing? I'm David Kramer. I'm professor of Talmud and Rabbinics at the Jewish Theological Seminary and also the director of the library here. Kramer wrote the book Jewish Eating and Identity Through the Ages. Eating practices have always been a very, very important way of distinguishing us from them. Why undertake these eating practices at all? To be holy means to be distinct, to be separate. Uh, and the Torah says quite explicitly that one of the purposes of these eating rules, eating certain things and not eating other things, uh, is to be holy. But maybe this holiness doesn't require total separation. In the normal everyday course of affairs, Jews and their neighbors were probably eating more or less the same thing. When we're looking at the Near East, you can imagine uh, a little bit of what we would call hummus, you know, beans, vegetables, olive oil for sure. We take it for granted that animals are a regular part of our Western diet. 
But that wasn't true for Jews thousands of years ago. Which means, ironically, that the Torah's rules regulating eating would have been largely irrelevant to most people on most occasions. This is kind of a remarkable thing to hear. The laws of kashrut didn't come up that much because people just weren't eating that much meat. There are rules around produce too, but most kashrut is relevant to types and preparation of meat. What this means is that when you think about the special qualities of Jewish eating, the permitted and the prohibited in the biblical age, and then even into the rabbinic age, uh, they had more relevance when you were getting together as a people to celebrate your identity. As soon as people started eating more meat on a regular basis, the laws of kashrut became more and more relevant, which meant that eating in a Jewish way became more important, more distinctive. Now, interestingly, the priests always did this, which is why these rules always applied to the priests. The temple was the ritual center of Jewish life for centuries. The priests of the temple ate meat nearly every day as part of their ritual worship. But common Jews did this only on special occasions, the Sabbath, the holidays, and so forth. On those occasions, in effect, we were gathering to be like priests, to celebrate in special ways our identity. And that's when these rules came in. Uh, I think it's fair to say that we are imitating priests when we follow the same rules on these occasions that priests were following all the time. Until about 400 years ago, most Jews still weren't eating meat very often, maybe once a week on Shabbat or at holidays. So kashrut was still only relevant on these special occasions. According to Kramer, when the temple was destroyed in the year 70, the rabbis quickly modified Judaism, evolved Judaism, to keep it relevant, to create a new path for its practitioners. And so to take what is probably the most obvious example, uh, the Torah does not prohibit the mixing of dairy and meat. Um, it does have a verse which the rabbis understand prohibits that mixing, but it's perfectly clear that Jews before the rabbis did not understand that verse or any other verse to prohibit this mixing. So when the rabbis and Jews who followed their practice began to separate between meat and dairy, uh, the rules of kashrut would have divided not only between Jews and their neighbors, but between some kinds of Jews and other kinds of Jews. And to be more specific, between rabbinic Jews and non-rabbinic Jews. And rabbinic Jews, with this new practice of not mixing meat and milk, were the Jews who managed to preserve a post-Temple Judaism, and that's led to the Judaism we know today. Preserving Jewish life couldn't mean only adding rules, though. There was a little more to it. Ironically, while in some of their rules, the rabbis wanted to uh, erect uh, even higher boundaries between Jews and their neighbors, in other ways, the food choices they made uh, were evidence of their wanting to be good Roman citizens. Jews could not be separated from their neighbors um, with a very high wall in between because if that were the world you were forced to live in, you literally wouldn't survive. And so the rabbis came up with guidelines to deal with eating in a not only Jewish world. And those guidelines are much of what we consider today to be the rules of kashrut. One of the core ideas of these guidelines is conservation and economics, really. Having to make sure that your food is kept separate from non-kosher food can be difficult. 
and getting rid of food that was contaminated with non-kosher goods would get really expensive. So the rabbis wanted to protect people from having to throw out food because of contamination with non-kosher food or kosher dairy that might be contaminated with kosher meat. And uh, it's important for me to say that these rules were once upon a time far more active in contributing to leniency. Where you might have thought it's absolutely forbidden to eat any amount of a forbidden food. Seems like a given. There's a common modern day kashrut standard of 160th that says that if a Gentile were walking along the marketplace and by accident dropped some prohibited substance into your food that you're selling in the marketplace in front of you, right, do you have to throw the whole thing out? Well, no, you don't. If a forbidden substance accidentally falls into your food, as long as the ratio is only up to one part forbidden to 60 parts kosher, you can still eat it. But the 160th rule is actually one of the stricter laws about accidentally mixing non-kosher with kosher food. Kramer says that even taste is a consideration in what's kosher. A drip of bacon fat falls into your pot? As long as it doesn't change the taste of your soup, it's not a problem. Suddenly, you can eat the forbidden food so long as you're not consciously or intentionally experiencing it. That seems so crazy to me. It sort of eliminates all of the neuroses around kashrut. If you're not conscious of the non-kosher element, then it doesn't really matter. As if accidentally doing something imperfectly is just as kosher as doing it perfectly. This taste thing is interesting. First of all, how would a Jew know if her food tasted non-kosher? How would she recognize the taste of that bacon? And also, if she tasted it and realized that it changed the flavor of her soup, hadn't she just eaten non-kosher food? Ironically, for kashrut to work, you needed a Gentile friend who could taste the food for you and tell you, can you taste the forbidden substance or not? So the rabbis had purposefully constructed a situation in which a Jewish practice was served by being in relationship with non-Jews. And it gets crazier. There are other rules, such as um, if it's the next day, it doesn't count, right? So even if it gives a taste, 24 hours later, the taste is considered to be a negative taste. What's a negative taste? If something non-kosher gets mixed into your kosher food and makes it taste worse, your food is still kosher. So if you're not conscious of it, it's still kosher. But even bigger than that, if you are conscious of it and it tastes bad, then it's still kosher. And to the rabbis, every day-old taste in your pan is considered a bad taste and so doesn't matter for kashrut. That 24-hour waiting period sort of nullifies any good taste. This rule of negative taste is kind of like a 24-hour reset button for your pots. There is another rule which actually has very radical consequences, which most people have never even heard of. Although up till the 16th or 17th century, it was a very important rule. What it says is that if there's a secondary transmission of taste, say, from the meat into the pot, and then from the pot back into what's being cooked in it today, if we're talking again about the need to separate meat and dairy, it doesn't apply anymore. So if I cook meat in a pot, it doesn't make that pot a meat pot. And that goes for implements too. 
No need to stab that meaty, milky knife in a potted plant. Whoa, that seems like a really valuable rule. Why did it go out of use? There are a great many rules which were once upon a time called upon far more actively to create leniency. That's another way of saying that, yes, things have gotten a lot stricter in later centuries. Around the 16th and 17th centuries, Jews were starting to eat more meat, among other changes. What's happened in modernity, far larger populations of Jews with far greater affluence, who can therefore rely only upon our own resources. Here, Kramer's talking about the beginning of the 20th century. Jews with Jews, we can insist that we buy Jewish products, that we have separate kitchens with separate dishes and separate pots. Nowadays, kashrut seems to be about perfection, total isolation of kosher food from non-kosher food, and in some ways, Jews from non-Jews, and even religious Jews from less religious Jews. One can easily show uh, that there was a kind of panic uh, that entered the observant Jewish world beginning in the early to mid-1980s uh, over the presence of bugs uh, in vegetables. All of a sudden, vegetables might not be kosher. In water, I mean, you know, imagine unkosher water. These things had never existed before. I'm not suggesting that there wasn't awareness of bugs before and certain kinds of bugs under certain conditions um, would have been forbidden. Uh, but you never see the kind of panic and strict prohibition. Kramer says if you go back to earlier rabbinic authorities who were consulted about bugs in water or bugs on veggies, most of the rabbis responded by saying, don't worry about it, our ancestors ate those too. All of a sudden, in the early to mid-1980s, this became the source of great concern, particularly in the ultra-Orthodox community, led to what is arguably a new kashrut, and I think it's not a matter of coincidence that this was precisely at the time when questions like, who is a Jew in Israel? Whose conversions will be accepted? Um, who counts as a real rabbi and who not? All of these questions were being raised in the Jewish community uh, and the ultra-Orthodox community, the ultra-observant community were retreating. They created a new kashrut, which ironically separated them from people who observed kashrut, but at what they now came to consider a lower level. When a community isolates itself with something as integral and important as daily food restrictions, the barriers between that community and others become more and more pronounced. And now there's not a single authentic way to keep kosher. The short lesson of all of this is that Jewish eating and Jewish identities have always been wrapped up in one another, but it would be a mistake to imagine that there's some kind of idealized form of Jewish food, eating, or eating practices. These things have always changed as the negotiation of Jewish identity in different settings at different points of history has offered new challenges, uh, and uh, our eating practices will continue to change as we face new challenges. David Kramer is the author of a number of books, including Jewish Eating and Identity Through the Ages. Come and Listen is brought to you with support from Upstart, the Bronfman Youth Fellowships in Israel Alumni Venture Fund, and the Mahon Hadar Alumni Microgrant. Check us out on our website, comeandlisten.com, where you can listen to all of our episodes, tell us what you think, and support this project. 
Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Our engineer is Seth Samuel. I'm Alyssa Kapnick. And I'm Hannah Kapnick-Ashar. 